Whenever uh, too many of our clergy are gone for too long, I do feel like I need to say something about where they are. Um, <laughs> Father Brent is in Barcelona, Barcelona. Um, he's uh, on babysitting duty with his, his wife, with Reverend Janice, uh, watching a couple of their grandkids while their daughter, who's an international accountant, has some, some work to do. So they're, uh, you know, I'm sure it's tough. Bishop Ed, this past week, had an exciting opportunity to uh, go to Rome, go to the Vatican, and sit in on some meetings that were happening with Pope Francis. And so he's, uh, I believe he's on his way home at this point, but uh, he had a great trip. I got a lot of pictures of uh, wine and pasta, but no, no pictures of the Pope. So <laughs> I don't know if that's actually true. There's no evidence to say that he actually met with Pope Francis. And... Um, Father Chris, I'll let you ask Julie where Father Chris is today. He's in town. Sorry, Julie. Nobody go ask Julie where Chris is. He's in town. He's fine. He's safe. He had a, he had a commitment that he had to go attend to today. So today is uh, it's spooky season. And I, I thought today I would love to have a kind of spooky uh, sermon for us today. And the best I could come up with was the judgment of God. So we're going to spend some time, uh, I mean, I love, love, love these texts. This, this, this story of Zacchaeus, first of all, before we jump into a couple other texts for today, it, it is like a North Star text for me. Um, it's one of those, those orienting passages that when I think about who I want sanctuary to be, who I want to be as a person, I think about this, this story of Zacchaeus. But it's paired with some, some kind of interesting text. So let's jump into, this is from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 1, right at the very beginning, verses 10 through 18. I think we have this for you to follow along, actually. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. <laughs> Great start. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asked this from your hand? It's funny, we should pause to just note, God did. <laughs> who asked you to do this? Well, you know. There's like minutia detail in the Old Testament, right, of how to do this and when to do this and with what kind of animals. Now here's God going, who, who told you to do all this stuff? Trample my courts no more. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are calling of convocation. I cannot endure solemn assemblies with iniquity. Jumping down to verse 15. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. And now here God names the evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. 
This text, this is, this is God's judgment of Israel, of the people of God. He says to them, you know how to worship. I've taught you how to worship, but you've turned it into this whole other thing. You're doing it all the right way, but you're doing it with the wrong heart. That's God's judgment against his people, that you are worshiping correctly, you're offering your prayers in the right way, but when it comes to the poor, to the oppressed, to the orphan, to the widow, there's no evidence that your right worship is leading to right living. So again, this is, this is God's judgment against Israel. And one of the other texts that we have for today comes from Habakkuk. I'm sure you've all spent a lot of time in Habakkuk. And it's a kind of response, a kind of retort to God's judgment. And it says, this is the oracle that the prophet Habakkuk saw. So we have God speaking to Israel, and now we have Israel speaking back to God. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and to look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise so that the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. The people of God are saying, God, you want us to do justice. But every time we start to do justice, your justice never comes. Why do you make us look at everything that's wrong with the world, but you're not going to do anything about it? So you have God saying to the people of Israel, you're not taking care of the people that I've called you to. And you have the people of Israel who are saying, we're trying to turn our gaze onto the people that you've called us to, but your justice is never going to come. If anything is going to change, it's going to be because you show up and make things right. Where are you, God? These kinds of dialogues, there's something that it seems like God wants from us. You're all hearing that, right? It's not. Listen, I drove here with some trunk or treat decorations in my car and the paint fumes were like still cooking. And I told my wife on the way in, I was like, man, these, <laughs> if I'm able to get through this sermon today, we'll see. So the people of God are saying, we want to see your justice. We're waiting for you to show up. Oh Lord, how long do we have to wait? And it seems when we look at the text that God wants this kind of back and forth. God is not interested in just monologuing to us. God wants the, God wants the wrestle. You know, I, I, I've got three kids and at least two of them right now are really, really interested in, in wrestling, like being wrestled. And for those of you who have been fortunate enough to be parents, you know that there are these moments when your kids, they want to be tossed and they want to be roughhoused with, but your, your job as a parent is not to like destroy your kids. It's not like we're grabbing them by the feet and like throwing them against the wall. Like, ha ha. 
And the same is true with God. The point is not to destroy us. The purpose is the tussle. It is the back and forth. It's, it's the intimacy of being able to say to God what is truest in you. Being able to say to God, this is the world as I see it. Being able to lament, being able to grieve should be part of these regular rhythms of our spirituality. So it seems that God wants this kind of dialogue. When we look at the prophets, it seems like one of the things we should notice is that the things that the prophets really, really care about, the things that are closest to the heart of God are actually things that don't really concern us. Like on paper, yes, we would say absolutely with the things about the poor, the oppressed, the widow, the orphan. But you know, when I wake up on Monday morning, I've got a to-do list. I've got, I've got boxes that I've got to check. I've got, I've got bills that I have to pay. Abraham Heschel, he talks about the way that the kinds of things that scandalize us are rarely the things that scandalize the prophets. He says this in this little book called The Prophets. Indeed, the sort of crimes and even the amount of delinquency that fill the prophets of Israel with dismay do not go beyond that which we regard as normal, as typical ingredients of social dynamics. He's saying we just see the world and we just go, well, this is just how things are. But the prophets are seeing something else. To us, he says, a single act of injustice, cheating in business, exploitation of the poor is slight. To the prophets, it's a disaster. To us, injustice is injurious to the welfare of the people. To the prophets, it is a death blow to existence. To us, it's an episode. To them, a catastrophe, a threat to the world. In Isaiah, God has taken this accusation that Israel has forgotten the poor and the oppressed, and he takes it so seriously that, do you remember what he called them? You rulers of Sodom. God has associated the people of Israel with the rulers of this wicked nation of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, most of us, we have a kind of pop culture, pop theology kind of understanding of this wicked nation, about the, the sin of Sodom. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go look it up. Almost certainly what we mean by the sin of Sodom and what the scriptures call the sin of Sodom are, are not the same thing. The real offense, the offense that the prophets bear witness to is this. We find this in Ezekiel chapter 16. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. This is the sin of Sodom that they were prosperous, they were wealthy, they were successful, and they ignored the needs of others. The sin of Sodom in the scriptures is the refusal to take responsibility for their neighbor. It's a lack of justice. 
ignoring the oppressed, the poor, those that are in need. They are blind to the widow. That is the sin of Sodom. So, as it turns out, God's judgment comes strolling into Jericho in our gospel text today, looking for this person of Zacchaeus. In the gospel of Luke, and in most of the gospels this is true, the rich never come off well. In fact, the people that Jesus seems to reserve the the kind of harshest criticisms of are oftentimes the wealthy, the uber-religious, the people who think they've got it all together, right? St. Jerome, who is commenting on the rich, he refers to them as either wicked or heirs of wickedness. So the wealthy just, they're going to have a hard time here today. And what's interesting about Zacchaeus is that he's rich, but he's rich as an outsider. Most of the rich that we encounter in the Gospels, they're, they're rich insiders. They're people who manipulated the temple system. They've gotten rich by kind of gaming Israel's own system. But in the case of Zacchaeus, he's an Israelite who is making his wealth working for the Roman government. He's gotten in bed with the empire for his own gain. So he's getting rich by serving the oppressors, even though he's one of the oppressed. So it's, it's an odd image that we're being invited to gaze at today. A man who is rich, but he's also oppressed as an oppressor. He's on the side of Rome, who is occupying Israel, and then he's taxing his own people and even like skimming a little off the top for himself. And on one hand, he is the problem. He's, he's the guy who is making life miserable for the Israelites. And then on the other hand, he is also suffering because the ways that his own people have rejected him and the ways that the Romans don't see him as a, a full participant in their systems. The Romans still see him as less than, and he's also lost the respect of his own people. Zacchaeus is an, is an outcast in every imaginable sense. He's wealthy, he's got great riches, but he's also small. He's rich, but he has no respect from his own people. He is both inside and outside, all at the, at the same time. And we're told that he wants to see Jesus. And oftentimes we just think, well, he's too small. Jesus comes along, and so he has to go climb this tree. But that's not what the text says. The text says that the crowd prevents him from seeing Jesus. Which is to say they're, they're aware of his smallness. And so they organize themselves in a way that actually keeps Zacchaeus out. And so what does he do? He runs up ahead, he finds a tree, he climbs it. Again, we've, we've heard this story as being about Zacchaeus, but what we're supposed to see is not just that Zacchaeus is too small, but that the crowd uses his smallness to refuse him room. They crowd him out. Now, this is also supposed to be a funny story. Here's this man, this wee little man and a wee little man, but he's also rich. 
He's powerful. He's someone who is proud. He's somebody who enjoys nice things. And here he is up a tree at the mercy of the crowd. And it's here. It's, he's settled in this spot. He's peering between branches that Jesus comes to Zacchaeus and says, hurry and come down from there. I have to go to your house today. Every single person besides Jesus is surprised at this, which speaks to the heart of the gospel for us. Because Zacchaeus thinks that he's coming to look for Jesus. He's coming to seek Jesus out. And it turns out the only reason that Jesus is in Jericho is to come and find Zacchaeus. He's been seeking Jesus out. And meanwhile, Jesus is really the one who is seeking out Zacchaeus. The good news is that if it's true for him, it's also true for us. That we think we're seeking God, but whatever seeking we're doing is already the work of God seeking us. If we're praying, it's because Christ's prayer is already happening in us. If we are repenting, it's because the mercy of God is already at work in us. If we think we're going to invite Jesus into our heart, it's because Christ has already invited us into his heart. And when Jesus is the one dishing out the invitations, we are always guests and never the host. We don't set the guest list. Jesus does. We are always only ever responding to Christ's mercy. We're never creating it. So any good that happens in my life, any good that happens in your life, it happens because God is acting gracefully on our behalf before I even know how to ask for the good thing. On some level, I think we believe that the good that we want in our life, we believe that it won't happen unless we want it to happen or unless we ask for it to happen. But the reality is that the wanting it only happens because the good is already happening to you. You are experiencing the good, which is the very reason why you want God's goodness. You are the ones who have come and tasted and seen that the Lord is good. God is good to you, not because you want him to be. You want God to be good to you because God is good to you. When you taste, when you see, it only leaves you wanting more and more of God's goodness. So Jesus invites himself over. The crowd goes wild in the worst way. The text tells us that the crowd was grumbling. Now up until this point in the Gospels, the only people that we've seen grumbling are, are who? We know this. The Pharisees. They're the ones who are grumbling. Jesus is going around messing everything up. But now it's not just the Pharisees who are grumbling, it's everybody involved. Because grumbling is, is infectious. Grumbling is like a disease. If you don't believe me, go post something on Facebook. <laughs> to Heschel's point, go bring up the poor on Facebook and see what people say to you. Go bring up the oppressed. Go bring up those who are discriminated against because of their race or their nationality. 
Go bring up immigrants or refugees whom we're called to welcome and care for. If you're Bishop Ed, go bring up the unity of the church and Christ's body and watch the whole internet burn down. <laughs> Grumbling is a disease. It's infectious. And it's a, it's a disease that we're all prone to catch. It doesn't just happen to those people. It seems to happen especially to the people of God. Remember the story of the Israelites in the wilderness. And here are these people who have been delivered from slavery, delivered from oppression. They're called to inhabit a promised land. But their day-to-day is mostly spent begrudging what they don't have and grumbling about what they do have. What they're stuck with. So much so that some of them think it might be better for them to just go back to Egypt. Go back to slavery. The, the perfect line to, to just summarize all of this is this line in the Old Testament where they say, we have no food to eat. We hate the food you've sent us. <laughs> this is the mark, I think, of sin in our lives. If the mark of grace in us, if the work of salvation in my life is more and more gratitude and thanksgiving welling up within me, then the mark of sin, the mark that I am missing and losing touch with the grace of God is that I'm grumbling more and more and more. So here's the crowd, grumbling, angry that Jesus is showing grace to Zacchaeus. And just imagine that for a second. Imagine how angry you would be, those of you who show up hours early to get a front row seat. I don't know if we have many hours early front row seat people at Sanctuary. But just imagine for a moment, you've done that kind of work, spent that kind of energy to get a front row seat. You're there hoping to catch a glimpse of this Jesus character. Maybe see a miracle or two. And he just walks right past you. Doesn't even acknowledge you. And in fact, he goes to that guy who's been part of the oppressive force in your life. And now of all things, all that this worthless Jesus is going to do is go talk to the guy who's been scamming us out of our money, the guy who sold his soul for a buck. And he's gonna go eat with him at his house? Listen, there are, there are people in your life. And when I say this, hopefully nobody comes to mind or at least doesn't come to mind too quickly. Hopefully it's not me. There are people in your life that if we could see God being good to them, if we could see God being gracious to them, it would make us angry. Because that's what sin does to us. Sin in our life distorts our perception of God's goodness in other people's life. It makes us angry when the people we've determined don't deserve that good thing, get that good thing anyway. 
We tend to think that those people, whoever those people are, again, I hope it's not me, we think that they've lived in such a way. They've voted in such a way. They've advocated for so-and-so in such a way that they have given up their right for God to live as their guest. And here, Jesus is just stirring the hornet's nest. Ultimately, what gets Jesus killed is what he does for people like Zacchaeus. For the people that you and I don't think deserve God's goodness. The crowd is fine when Jesus is healing the sick, when he's giving sight to the blind, when he's cleansing the leper, feeding the hungry, raising the dead back to life. But once Jesus starts changing the world too much, once Jesus starts doing things like this for people like that, now it's a problem. The hard, wonderful, hopeful reality is that all of Christ's life is about this kind of restructuring of the world. Changing the world past what we could hope for, past what we could expect, past what we can imagine. But it's when Jesus starts to change the way right and wrong seem to work. Restructuring who's in and who's out, this is what gets Jesus killed. And what is Zacchaeus' response to all this? <laughs> Jesus, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay them back four times over. Now, if you're cynical like me, you're thinking, Zacchaeus, keep your mouth shut, man. Like, there's a crowd of people here, and they're angry with you. Someone is liable to hear you and take advantage of this new offer you're making. Even if you haven't scammed them, right? Like, I would be the first guy in line to be like, hey, remember that time? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, it happened anyway. Four times more. Let's go. But this is what Zacchaeus does. And I can't help but think it's because of the grace of Jesus that he's just encountered. It's foolishness. Complete foolishness. Gregory the Great, he points out that in Luke's gospel, the Greek word for sycamore is a wordplay. And it can also be interpreted as not just the sycamore tree, but the foolish tree. And Gregory says this, Zacchaeus climbs the tree of foolishness to see the wisdom of God. And what is more foolish than not seeking for what we've lost? Not keeping our possessions away from robbers or not returning injury for injury. What's he saying? The foolishness of God, the foolishness of the kingdom of heaven is that you don't have to live in ways that are oriented towards self-protection. Why does Zacchaeus offer to give it all away? Because he isn't defending himself anymore. This is the foolishness of the story. Zacchaeus has found Jesus. Well, really, Jesus has found Zacchaeus. And so he doesn't need to protect himself. This is the foolishness of God that enables us to see the wisdom of God. 
Because when we encounter the grace and the hospitality of Jesus, it draws grace and hospitality out of us. Rowan Williams, my friend, says this. In other words, Jesus is not only someone who exercises hospitality. He draws out hospitality from others. By his welcome, he makes other people capable of welcoming We are the guests of Jesus. We are there because he asks us and because he wants our company. At the same time, we are set free to invite Jesus into our lives and literally to receive him into our bodies in the Eucharist. We are welcomed and we welcome. We welcome God and we welcome our unexpected neighbors. His way of welcoming Zacchaeus and his way of welcoming us is to say, aren't you going to ask me into your home? This is the mark of a faithful life, of a life that has seen Jesus. It's a life that refuses to self-protect. Self-protection may be our posture, but it's never the posture of the prophets and it's never the invitation of Jesus. And one of the things that strikes me about this and what I pray we can all see and hear today is that Jesus doesn't say a word to Zacchaeus about his sins. About the ways that he's betrayed his own people, betrayed his own values, his ethics in order to make a buck and protect his financial future. Jesus doesn't say a word. Jesus doesn't stop under the sycamore tree and say, Zacchaeus, you cruel, bitter little man. Get down out of that tree. No. Zacchaeus, I came looking for you. Let's go to your house today. And it's from that invitation that Zacchaeus seeks to care for and to reconcile with his neighbors. The very recognition that he's loved by this one frees him up and makes him aware of his responsibilities to those that he's wronged. That is how you know it's God's work. Because where God is most at work, I'm most aware of my responsibility to my neighbor. This is the accusation in Isaiah. The people of God have become idolatrous. Idolatry for them and for us is this attempt to have a relationship with God without taking responsibility for my neighbor. Faithfulness is a love for God that looks like responsibility for my neighbor. Faithfulness is loving God as I love my neighbor, as I love myself. That is the mark of a faithful life. And it's in that moment of calling Zacchaeus back to faithfulness that Jesus says to the crowd, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Jesus says it to Zacchaeus, but everyone there hears it. He says, listen, this is what salvation looks like. Communion with God in such a way that you don't have anything to protect. It's radical openness, unqualified welcome that marks a life by salvation. 
Jesus says to the crowd, he is one of you. His actions have left him isolated, have left him disconnected from the people of God. But Jesus is reconciling him back to his community, back to where he belongs. He says to the crowd, Zacchaeus belongs to you and you belong to Zacchaeus. That person you were so convinced wasn't worthy of a spot in the crowd. He is actually your brother. She is actually your sister. You are all sons and daughters, children of Abraham. Jesus says, you may think you know who those people are. You've got them all figured out. But you don't really know who they are. Because they are mine and you are mine and you belong to one another. Again, notice this shift in Zacchaeus. It doesn't happen because Jesus shames him. Zacchaeus becomes aware of his sins without hating himself for his sins. And what we see in the prophets and what we see in the gospels is that when the judgment of God really comes and finds us, it doesn't blind us to what's wrong with us. It makes us aware of what's wrong with us in a way that is, is never shaming, is never humiliating. God's judgment finds us in a way that empowers us to make right what we now realize we can make right. Again, it's pressing us into responsibility. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a way of hearing this as like cheap grace. Cheap grace tells you that your sins don't matter. That's not what's happening here. Costly grace, the grace that we are called to, it transforms us so that we can live in ways that bring the righteousness of God to bear. No shame at all. There's no, no embarrassment at all. There's no humiliation. But that kind of awareness that empowers you to take responsibility for others seriously. That is the difference between a mature faith and an immature faith. And if you want to know, how do, we, how do we tell if we're mature in our faith, if we're immature in our faith? My friend Glenn Packiam just tweeted something this week where he says, the unity of the church is a marker of our spiritual maturity. Are you moving toward one another? Or are you just interested in drawing those lines between who is in and who is out? Because the church cannot grow in unity if it will not grow in maturity. Immature faith is waiting on God to do something that God is not going to do. It's waiting on God to do something that God has called us to be responsible for. This is the cry in Habakkuk. We keep waiting on you to show up and to do justice. We keep waiting on you to show up and make these things right. And God is looking at the people of God and going, listen, you know how to pray. You know how to worship. You know how to offer sacrifices. But you're not even looking at your neighbor. Immature faith is waiting on God to do what is ours to do. Mature faith 
is the recognition that as grace enables me to take responsibility, as I'm able to see and take responsibility for my neighbor, then God does in the world what I'm asking God to do in the world. Because I'm part of doing that thing that I'm waiting on God to do. Listen, you want to ask the question, what is God doing in the world? I, I don't have time for this. Stand up so you think I'm done. I grew up in a lot of circles where we talked about what God is doing. We just need to find out what God is doing and go be part of it. And what God was doing was this mysterious thing out there that we had to discover so we could participate in. Listen, you want to know what God is doing in the world. What are you doing? You are the people of God. You are the body of Christ. What God is doing in the world is what you are up to. Are you moving toward the poor? Are you aware of those who are oppressed? Are you postured, oriented toward welcoming the refugee, the stranger? Because this is the life that Jesus calls us to. We are people who have heard a word of welcome. And now we turn and we give that same invitation to others. You are welcome.